How's everybody doing? Sorry, I got some water this time. If you remember last week, I was lax in that. Uh, so today, pretty excited. We're starting a new series through Peter's second epistle. I chose Second Peter for two main reasons, if you care. I'm going to tell you. First, with only three chapters, it's a book we can go through in about uh, 10 weeks. I wanted to finish before the Christmas season, and I wanted something uh, short enough that our small groups could go through it together sort of as a, as a one-time study without monopolizing all of their small group time. The plan is to spend about 10 weeks, both on Sunday mornings and in our small groups, seeing, uh, seeking to understand and apply Second Peter uh, to our lives. And to help us with that, along with the regular sermon notes, I've included uh, some small group study questions. If you, if you get to bulletin, inside the bulletin are notes, and some, uh, these are more important than ever now. Uh, inside them at the end are questions that uh, the small group leaders will have, and that hopefully you guys will be going through during your small group. So the first reason for Second Peter was uh, practical. The second and more important reason is the nature of Second Peter's content. I believe we all benefited from our study through First Peter a little less than two years ago. Can I get an amen? All right. Some people are going. We we did second. We did First Peter. I don't remember that. Uh, if you remember, we learned much about what it means to persevere in faith, to live for the Lord during times of hardship, of suffering, of uh, persecution. And in Second Peter, this theme continues and expands. Here, Peter teaches that through Christ, God transforms and empowers His people to live righteously in the face of false teaching and opposition. So as we uh, go through this letter written to the church in Peter's day, it's my prayer and my purpose that all of us will be transformed by the Spirit of God, that will be strengthened, that will be encouraged, that will be challenged, that our, our roots will grow deep, deeper in our relationship with the Lord, and that we, by His power, will live righteously in the face of of the false teaching and opposition in our day. In fact, uh, would you join me in prayer to that end? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Second Peter. We look forward to all that we will learn, uh, teach, be taught, apply to our lives. Lord, and we, we pray specifically as we live in a world that continues to be seemingly more and more hostile to those who have faith in Christ. Father, I pray that... Uh, the applications will be apparent and real to us today. Lord, I pray you would be with us as we uh, begin this study. Just use it uh, for uh, our good and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, each week we'll be going through this uh, letter. Uh, it's called epistle, means letter, verse by verse. And as is always my goal in any uh, sermon or series, I'll do my very best to keep my words as close to God's Word as I can. I am human and will not always meet that goal, but I'm going to do my best. Uh, you do not 
or at least you should not, come to church to hear my opinions or the opinions of any person. You come, I pray, to worship and to hear the Word of God. Therefore, it's my obligation and joy, to the best of my ability, empowered by uh, the Spirit of God, to preach God's Word in such a way that it can be understood and applied to our lives. That through God's Word, the Holy Spirit that dwells in all who believe will open our eyes, penetrate our hearts and minds, and bring lasting, eternal transformation. I know that sounds pretty lofty. But this is what the Word of God can do if we would but yield to it. We would yield to the Spirit and truly take in uh, the Word that He inspired We would study it, we would believe it, we would apply what God has so graciously revealed to us. As the author of Hebrews so profoundly wrote, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is great transformational power in the Word of God. Not because it's typed out, but because it's coming from God, because it's inspired by the Spirit. So I would ask that, that we make a commitment to take in Second Peter. Maybe it can be an experiment in your life. If I fully devote myself to this, what, what's God going to do? To be here on Sunday mornings and to faithfully attend one of the small groups that together we might allow God to use His Word to pierce our souls, to penetrate our hearts and minds, to discern our thoughts and our intentions, to convict us, to lead us to repentance, to draw us into deeper, more satisfying, joy-filled relationship with Him. Amen? One final admonition before we begin. I'd encourage you, as always, to bring your Bibles I know we put uh, the verses on the screen, and we'll continue to do that. We have Bibles also that are free to take in front of you in your pews. If uh, you're young or have a magnifying glass, you can use those. If not, bring... So I got a new Bible, by the way. Uh, It is a large print. That's embarrassing, I know, but it's what I I use now. Uh, Anyway... (laughs) there's much to be gained by having your own Bible in front of you. I mean, we used to always do that, right? Back in church when we didn't have these screens and stuff. Where you can underline, where you can jot down little notes. You are allowed to write in your Bibles in case you're not aware of that. Also, do take notes. I mean, sometimes it's hard. Use the sheet provided. Uh, I showed it already. It has spaces. It has my points in it. Or bring your own paper. Uh, my wife brings her computer. And, you know, if you bring a computer, you're welcome to... If you don't have a computer, you're not allowed to sit at these tables. Just kidding. Uh, but that's part of what the, we have these tables here for, for those that really want to get serious and, and, and type as they take notes. So, because after each message, I want us to be prepared for our small groups, where we can discuss... We can ask questions. I mean, how many times have you been in church, the sermon's going on, and you go, what did he say? I don't really get that. Uh, 
He didn't really explain it very well. That probably happens a lot to you guys, but anyway. But you'll have an opportunity in your small groups because we have some great small group leaders. Don up there does our video, Chuck. Gary, where are you at? Sean and I, Brian leads a group. I'm, there's going to be a women's study led by Gloria and Harriet. And if I'm not missing anybody, I think that's it. And all of these people have a, have a deep relationship with the Lord and can help you. Uh, to understand Second Peter better. So that by the time we finish Second Peter, its truths, the truths that God has revealed there, will be rooted and growing in our hearts and minds. So that's enough introduction. So let's begin. And we begin with Peter's humble introduction. We see this uh, at first in how he identifies himself. Did you guys hear? Uh, I don't mean to throw my wife under the bus, but... Did you hear that one mistake she made in reading? Simon. She said Simon Peter, right? Because isn't that his name? We all call him Simon Peter. That's what I learned. Lo and behold, it's actual Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter identifies himself using both his names. Simeon is the Hebrew spelling of the Greek Simon. So Simon is correct too. Peter, a Jew, was named after Jacob's uh, second son, Jacob, Israel, father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Second son was named Simeon. But he's also Peter, or Petros, which is Greek, and it means rock or stone. It seems Peter wants his readers to know that he is a man of two worlds. He was born a Jew, but has and will continue to minister to both Jews and Greeks, to Gentiles. So Simeon, Peter is the name, but how he describes himself is telling. He uses both his names, and now he describes himself in two ways, a servant and apostle to Jesus Christ. The word apostle uh, literally means messenger, one sent forth with a message. And in the early church, an apostle to Jesus Christ was one who was was officially commissioned by Christ to proclaim the message of the gospel. Being an apostle was also associated with miraculous power. And it specifically applied to the 12 apostles of Christ, a few and a few others, Paul, the apostle Paul for one. So this title apostle carried a great deal of authority. An apostle was a representative of Jesus Christ. The apostle spoke for Christ. In Ephesians 2.20, speaking to the church, Paul writes that it is built, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So as an apostle, Peter's ministry and teaching in the book of Acts and in First and Second Peter, and many believe uh, he was really behind the gospel of Mark, that Mark interviewed Peter. So his teaching provide part of the foundation of the church to this present day. And that could go to your head, right? I mean, the church is pretty big. I don't know if Peter's up in heaven. Wow, look at what I... I'm part of that foundation. Look at me. Listen to me. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. There are some in our world today who believe they're apostles of Jesus Christ and therefore... You have to listen to them. Uh, I'll let you make that call, but I don't think it's the case. Uh, but Peter was. 
He had that authority given to him by the Lord. Notice the apostle, though, uh, the word apostle, how he describes himself, comes second, not first. It's preceded by servant. This is the Greek word doulos, which we've talked about in depth at, at other times. It means servant. It means ser- all the way from like a servant, like a maid or a butler, in a sense, to all the way to a, a slave. It has a range of those meanings. So in humility, Peter is saying, yes, I'm an apostle, an authoritative representative of Jesus Christ in this world. Therefore, as followers of Christ, you must submit to my teaching. I'm not writing my opinions here. These come from the Lord, Peter's saying. But know this, as I represent Christ, I am first His servant. I'm submitting my life to Him. Peter identifies himself as both apostle and servant, but he puts servant first. And in this way, he shows he doesn't doesn't want to use his position as apostle to lord it over the saints. Paul did the same thing when he wrote the Corinthians about his authority. He said in verse 24 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. This humility by the apostles, we don't lord it over you. We're servants first, was learned from uh, Jesus. In Luke chapter 22, you might remember the story of the disciples, those guys. Uh, they're arguing about who's the greatest, who's going to be the greatest in, in your kingdom. Jesus, when you set up your kingdom, and to be honest, they're thinking of an earthly kingdom at this point, who's going to be greatest? Who's going to be your right-hand man? And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves, and the leader as one who serves. Jesus taught the importance of humility and servant leadership in those who follow him. And it seems that Peter learned the lesson well. As, as the song says, if you want to be great, I, I don't sing the songs, I just give you the lines. If you want to be, well, I'm, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. And we continue to see Peter's humility as he addresses the recipients of the letter. In the second part of verse 1, we read, To those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter understands that that, that his readers, his Christian readers, the church he's writing to, are on the same spiritual level, if you will, as himself. Although they do not, they do not have the same apostolic authority in the church. However, what's most important is that their faith makes them equal to the apostle Peter. Their faith in faith, their equal standing all who've been saved by the righteousness of God and faith in Jesus Christ are, in, are equal in God's sight. Peter has learned this too from Jesus. In, in Luke chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, to his followers, Jesus said, Behold, I have given you authority that, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
No matter how much authority or power or miraculous ability any specific believer is given by Christ, they should never forget that the great joy of their life is that they're saved by faith like everyone else, like all other saints, like all who trust in Christ. We place uh, so much emphasis on who leads, who, who has these special gifts, who has, who's in the spotlight. But that pales in comparison to what we all have in common. What's most important is that we're all servants of Christ and saved by Christ. Now, before we move on, to, on let me point out three things in this second half of verse 1, all of which that emphasize the spiritual equality of all believers before God. First, the phrase, a faith of equal standing. Uh, that's pretty clear, right? If you have true faith in Christ, you are on equal standing before God uh, uh, with all believers. Yes, even the apostles, Peter, Paul, the others, Peter, Paul, even Mary. You're on the same standing as Mary. Okay, sorry. Get it? So we, we got Peter, Paul, Mary, and we do have a Mary that some people don't believe they're on equal standing with. Well, Peter says you're on equal standing even with Mary. And even, yes, even uh, you're on equal standing with Billy Graham. I'm not sure about John Piper. He's a little, just kidding. He's, sorry, inside joke for some. Uh, equal standing with all. And there's a very important reason why we all have faith of equal standing. That's the second thing I want to point out. Notice the word obtained. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. How do we obtain this faith? Well, first, think about the word obtained. It's used, uh, well, think about the Greek word. It's used only three times in the New Testament, three other times besides this. And in each case, it refers to obtaining something, not by earning it, not by deserving it, uh, but actually by lot. The most famous example is in John chapter 19, verse 24. The Roman soldiers say to one another... Jesus is on the cross, and he sa they say, let us not tear it, his cloak, but cast lots, same word as obtained, for it, for it to see whose it shall be. So the word Peter uses to describe how we get our faith of equal standing contains the truth that our faith comes to us by God's choice, not by our own effort. Therefore, our faith is of equal standing because none of us earned it. None of us deserve it. We all received it in the same way. We obtained it from God. And that becomes even more clear in the third thing I want to point out. Peter says, we have obtained a faith of equal standing by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter stressing that our faith of equal standing was obtained not by our own righteousness, but by Christ's righteousness. Therefore, we have a faith of equal standing because we all obtained it as a gift. And that gift came not because we deserved it, but, because, but it came through Christ's righteousness. And by saying this, Peter, the apostle, is expressing humility. In fact, all of verse 1 conveys this sense of humility. Peter does have authority, but he, like all believers, is a servant of Christ and obtained his faith 
by the righteousness of Christ. In that most important part of the Christian life, we are all of equal standing before God. And all who have authority in this world, in this life, need to understand that. We need to follow Peter's example. We must not let our position go to our head. We all have, uh, we, 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 all we have, all we have, including our salvation, comes from Christ. And we're all first and foremost servants of Christ. So whether you're a, whatever title you have, pastor, elder, teacher, business owner, doctor, lawyer, principal, husband, parent, this applies in the family as well. You, like all believers, are servants of Christ and have faith of equal standing because, Christ, uh, because of Christ's righteousness, not your own. So we've seen Peter's humility as he introduces himself, as he addresses his readers. Now, let's look at Peter's hopeful greeting. In verse 2, Peter greets his readers with a, a benediction uh, or a, a blessing. He's just blessing them. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord and Jesus our Lord. And these are not just simple perfunctory words. Okay, got to say something in greeting. That sounds good. This is a statement of what Peter truly hopes, desires to see happen because of this letter. You know, I'm sending this letter and I want, as you read it, as you look at it, as you pour over it, may the grace and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of God and our Lord and Jesus our Lord. This is reinforced by the fact that the letter ends on the same note. In the final verse of, of 2 Peter, he writes, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his introduction and his conclusion, Peter pictures uh, peace in the first and peace and grace in both as something that comes to us from God. They, peace, grace, they are not ours by nature or by right. They come to us from outside ourselves. And Peter desires that they might come in great measure. His great longing for them and uh, for his readers and for mine, for you, I think many for one another, is that we all might abound in grace. That God might multiply his unmerited favor, the, the work he does in our lives, the undeserved things he does for us, that we might grow in grace and that there might be uh, great peace within and and without. And how does this take place? Peter says, God's grace and peace are multiplied in and through the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Knowing God is the means by which His grace and peace are multiplied in our lives. Therefore, if you want to enjoy God's peace and experience His grace, your knowledge of Him must grow. It just makes sense, right? I mean, if you want to, if you want to be at peace, uh, uh, peace with others, have internal peace, a sense of satisfaction and contentment in yourself, if you want to experience God's unmerited favor in your life, 
and you want to be a person who's able to give grace to others, your life radiates grace and forgiveness and mercy in the lives of others, you must grow in your knowledge of the one who is the source of all peace and grace. You can't divorce yourself from God and expect to have the character of God within your life. And just to be clear about grace, it's not something God gives once. You know, we often think grace is what we get when we, in that initial encounter, when we first put our faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, you do receive God's grace when, or uh, I, I tend to think before even, you put your faith in Christ. But grace is also something that continually works in your life. You and I are not merely saved by grace, we must live by grace. We must continually rely on God's unmerited favor to work in our lives as we live in this hostile world. It's by the grace of God working in and through our lives that we're able to live for Him in this life and that we'll be able to live with Him for all eternity. So when we fail to continue to grow in the knowledge of God, His grace in our lives becomes uh, stagnant. It does not flow. It does not grow. Put simply, we may, the way we receive grace from God's infinite, God has plenty of grace. He's not going to run out. Infinite reservoir into our lives, the way we experience it through our lives, is through the knowledge of God. And where does the knowledge of God come from? Well, I refer, refer you to a few weeks ago, Sermon from Psalm 19, which we covered, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, Ash? Three weeks ago. See, keep a young guy there to answer all the memory questions. All right. There, David gives us two sources of the knowledge of God, Psalm 19. First, we get some general knowledge of God from his creation. We see his mighty power, right? His creativity, but second, God reveals himself in a special way through his word. Our knowledge of God comes through the Bible. Therefore, we do not study scripture, I pray, for its own sake, just so we know the facts. You know, we're not that dragnet guy, just the facts, ma'am. We study scripture because through it comes the knowledge of God. And through the knowledge of God, grace and peace are multiplied in our hearts, in our church, and in our world. So in Peter's hopeful greetings, he's introducing us to the importance of the knowledge of God. Knowledge of God the Father, knowledge of the Son, and we could add, and the Spirit, leads to multiplied grace and peace in our lives. And in the next two verses, he builds on this connection between knowledge of God, the knowledge of God, and the power of grace as he reveals to us God's comprehensive gift. I know I had two H's. I was on a roll, but I couldn't. I, couldn't. I, I, I thought holistic was the right word. Then I looked it up. I go, that doesn't really mean what I want it to mean. So I changed to a C. Is that okay? Thank you. Whether it is or isn't, it is what it is. Verse 3, his divine power has granted, uh, here's the gift, he's granted, here's the, uh, the, the, here, here's the grace, 
in his divine power, he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Do you see God's gift? The grace of God, it's comprehensive. It covers all things that pertain to life and godliness. What else could there be? This is God's gift to those who trust in Him. And this is central to Peter's message. This is what he wants his readers to experience. That, and this is what I, I want us to experience. As Christians, we've received and therefore can experience all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we'll talk more about what those mean. Life, here is referring to the same thing Jesus was talking about when he said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. It's the abundant life. It certainly includes your eternal life. Ultimately, the gift is to experience eternal life in Christ, in the presence of God where there's joy and, and pleasures forevermore, David says in Psalm 1611. But that abundant life does not begin uh, when we, when you die. It begins when you're born again. God gives us everything we need that we might live uh, now abundant, eternal, godly lives. If you're in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, you have what you need. It's a gift. And we can't miss this connection uh, between godliness and life. He didn't just say life. Which some want us to just, uh, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the life. He says, godliness and life. You can't have one and reject the other. His divine power does not grant us all things that pertain to life eternal, but leave out all things that pertain to godliness. Godliness and life are a package deal. Therefore, we cannot turn our faith, uh, God's grace, into some kind of eternal life-giving fire insurance policy for escaping hell, hell while our lives, this side of heaven, remain uh, unchanged. The hope of life and the way of godliness stand or fall together. Peter makes this clear in uh, an often debated even little passage in Acts chapter 2. After his Pentecost Follow-up sermon, so we got Pentecost, and then people are gathered, Peter gives this sermon. The crowd asks, what, what, they're, they're moved, and they say, what, 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 <laughs> slow down there, what must we do to be saved? What, what must we do to be granted life eternal? And Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm surprised at how many people spend so much time explaining why we don't actually have to repent and why we don't have to, have to be baptized to be saved when Peter says clearly, this is what you got to do. The first thing Peter says is you, is you must repent to turn from your old way of life. Repentance, 180 degrees. Turn from your old way of life and to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ and to be baptized. 
And I'm not saying you have to go under the water to be saved. I'm saying you should go under the water, and why wouldn't you? But it's, it's really the, the, the outward sign of what's happened internally. To be baptized, to be immersed in Christ. To trust in Him. To give yourself completely to Him. So along with faith, repentance or godliness is necessary for salvation, for eternal life. But wait a minute, Pastor here. I thought I was saved by grace through faith alone. Isn't that a sole feed? Isn't that a Latin thing we say? By grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you're saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. We all know it. And yes, you are, and I are. I am saved by grace through faith alone. The problem is, often we don't have a correct understanding of true faith. True faith means you actually believe. It's not a, a, well, just in case. I've heard people share the gospel this way, and it makes me a little crazy. Well, you know, you could accept Jesus because just in case this is true, you don't, you know, there's your fire insurance policy, right? You actually have to believe to such an extent that you cannot live the same way any longer. Therefore, your actions of repentance, of godliness, are part and parcel of faith. They are the natural outflow and sign of true faith. No, and nobody's saying, uh, when you accept Christ, you have to become perfect, totally godly. That's not it. We know that. There's, it's a process. It's a life. It's growing. I mean, Peter's talking about growing in grace and knowledge. But without godliness, without this natural outflow, without this repentance, there is no true faith. If you struggle with, with that, let me, let me assign you some homework. Everybody, oh, I don't struggle. I'm not doing no homework. Uh, read the book of James. Four or five chapters, right, Gary? Five chapters. Gary's my go-to James guy. He's like memorized the whole book, right? Yeah, all right. Read the book of James. It's got a lot to say about this. Read Hebrews chapter 11, called the Hall of Faith, and every person of faith, faith is demonstrated by what they did. Read them, study them, and know that eternal life and godliness cannot be separated. So are you saying, Pastor, is Peter saying that I must earn my eternal life with godly living? No, I am not, and he is not. Again, this is the comprehensive gift of God. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We got to get this part. Neither godliness, righteous living, nor eternal life are things we can produce or attain ourselves. We can't earn them. They're granted to us by God, but they're granted together. When God grants us all things that pertain to life, when He gives us eternal life, when He transforms us and wants us to experience abundant life, He also grants us all things that pertain to godliness. We uh, evangelicals understand that we can do nothing to earn our salvation. That's 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 our thing. That it's a gift from God, right? But we must also understand that anything we do Anything I do, anything you do that can come under the category of godly, of righteous, is a gift from God. 
your ability, my ability to live a godly life is because of God. I take no credit for that. Without His gift of all things that pertain to godliness, we would have no hope of living godly lives. By His grace, we've become godly people. This is a a humbling truth, right? When it comes to both life, eternal life, abundant life, and godliness, God must provide everything we need. Of course, this doesn't mean we are passive, that we do nothing, that we just sit around. Again, James, Hebrews 11 for homework. And as Paul wrote in Philippians, I'll do this homework for you. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But stop there, I would go, oh, shoot. But he doesn't stop there, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see the same principle here? God is at work in you. He's transforming you for his good pleasure. Or we could say he's giving you all things pertaining to life and godliness. And at the same time, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And what I think that means is first, we understand that we can never be godly or attain eternal life, either one, without God working in us, without his divine power, without him granting us all things that we need. And then second, it means that we must submit to God. To his spirit. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Submit to the spirit which is at work in our lives. We respond in faith to not not just one time, but daily to the spirit's conviction and his guidance, which means we engage in godly living. We 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 need to pause here and let me stress this. The Christian faith is not merely a set of doctrines or beliefs to be accepted. It is, the, it is a power to be experienced. It's a, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tragic thing to ask people about their, how's your relationship with God, and they start listing off the things they believe about God, and nothing about their relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, believing things about Jesus Christ will save no one. The demons believe and tremble. Uh, That's in James, isn't it? All right, Gary. These demons, uh, Satan himself, most orthodox believers under heaven. It's not believing a set of facts that saves. It's the divine power of God that saves. Therefore, if the power of God does not flow into your life and make you godly or cause you to grow in godliness, again, it's not a magic, you're a different person. Well, you are a different person, but it takes time to to do that. But if you're not growing in godliness, you're not in Christ. You're you're, You're not Christ's. You don't belong to Christ. If you find yourself continually planning for and then falling for the same sin, if you find yourself continually quarreling with people, God's people even, 
If you find yourself not experiencing grace and peace and love and compassion and joy, but bitterness and pride and resentment and fear, then, then you, no matter what you say you believe, must question whether you truly belong to Christ. And I say this for your own good. Because there are many people who think, who don't know they have to live a godly life, who don't know they have to repent, who've been told they just need to say this prayer, and they're in, and they're going to have a, a sad awakening when they face God. And I believe those that told them that are going to have a sad awakening as well. As Paul wrote to the Romans, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The mark of sonship, and this applies to women, who say sonship and daughtership, I'm okay with that, but it applies to all who are in Christ, whether you're a male or a female. The son was the one that inherited in this culture. And so whether you're a man or a woman, you're, you're inheriting from Christ. The mark of sonship is not knowing facts about Jesus. It's being led by the Spirit. And the Spirit always leads us in godliness, which means uh, godliness. I haven't really defined it. Let me just take a stab at it. Uh, that you love the things of God that you walk after God, that you follow in His ways. That's your joy. That's your desire. That's your commitment. And again, it does not mean sinless perfection, this side of heaven, but it does mean a growing process of godliness. You are, are you, I should say, today, godlier than you were yesterday a year ago, 10 years ago, then you're being led by the Spirit. You're a, a son of God. But if, not, but if not, then again, you need to go before the Lord and cry out to Him in faith for Him to grant you all things that pertain to life and godliness. You need to truly trust, not in yourself, not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Part of the all things, maybe all of the all, I don't know, uh, we're given for life and godliness is we're given the righteousness of Christ. It's imputed to us. We, are, we become righteous in the sight of God. But how do we experience this life and godliness that we've been granted? Well, you might think, it, it, why isn't it just automatic? Why isn't, I, I, I like the word automagic, just happen automatically in our lives. That we need do nothing. That sounds good, except for it wouldn't be, because that's now how God did it. Again, we are to work out our own salvation. We are to be active. Yes, we've received a gift. We've been granted everything we need for life and godliness. But as is true of any gift, if you want to receive the benefits of the gift, you must open it and use it. A few years ago, uh, my kids gave me a Batman board game for Christmas. A Batman board game. I, I asked for it, okay? Anyway, however, it's very complicated. It's a complicated game if you know any of these kind of role-playing games or things like that. And normally, it's my son, the doctor of theoretical physics, 
that he is, who reads the rules, comprehends how to play, and then explains it to me. But since he lives in St. Louis, and I've yet to open a game, uh, uh, it's still sealed. It's still in my cabinet in, in my house. So even though the game was given to me, I've not received any of the benefits of playing it. And the same is true of the gifts God gives us. We see this in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. We've been granted, gifted all things that pertain to life and godliness. And how are the benefits of these? How do we experience the benefit of these gifts in our lives? Well, as in verse 2, where grace and peace are multiplied through the knowledge of God, here life and godliness come through that same knowledge of God. That word knowledge is the Greek epinosis. It means precise, correct knowledge. It means knowing God for who He truly is. Through the correct knowledge of God, by His divine power, God grants us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's through the knowledge of God that we receive everything we need for an abundant, godly, eternal life. Now again, just to be clear, Peter is not saying that if you can uh, make a list with a number of things, correct facts about God, then you'll receive life and godliness. We see this in the fact that Peter emphasizes one fact about God in particular, that he called us to his glory and excellence. This is not a mere fact about God. It's a fact about God that applies to those he calls. And when we know these truths about God, and we know what they mean for our lives, there is great power, and there can be transformation. John Piper illustrates it this way. If you're a prisoner of war in a concentration camp, and you've lost hope, and in hopelessness, hopelessness you, throw away, you throw your morality away, you don't care anymore, and then you learn that a prisoner exchange is being planned, and you see the guard coming down the road, pointing to individual prisoners and calling them to follow him to freedom. It is not a mere piece of knowledge when he points to you and he calls you. It is power. The power of hope surges through your body because you know you've been called. So when Peter says that God's divine power has granted you all things for life and godliness, and all things come through the knowledge of our call to glory, we should feel what that means. If we could but know the glory and excellence of God, and know that our Creator has approached us and said, you, you there, come, I'm, I'm going to show you my glory. Remember how Moses just begged to see the glory of God, and he had to go between these crevices, and God passed before him? We're going to see it all. You can see my glory, and I'll give you uh, an eternity to enjoy it with me. If you get that, if you understand that, there's power in that. Transformational power, godly power. Many of us uh, know this from experience. When you see the glory and excellence of God most clearly, when He reveals Himself through His Word, through answers to prayer, through an unexpected blessing in your life, through His presence in times of hardship, 
when you know that He calls you His child, He loves you and He wants what's best for you, that's when you have Holy Spirit power to live as you ought, to be godly. So, the power to experience life and godliness is granted to us through the knowledge of God, specifically the knowledge that we've been called by Him and will experience His glory and excellence. And all this, what we've seen in verse 3, this is further seen and explained in verse 4. I'm going a little long here. I, I apologize. We do have communion too. But this is good stuff if we can hold on. Okay. Okay, verse 4. Let me read it. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This, in many ways, is a restatement of verse 3. The same point is made, but the knowledge of verse 3 is interpreted for us. We know what it means in verse 4. The knowledge that leads to life and godliness is said to be the knowledge of God's precious and very great promises. And so we learn that, that the knowledge of God that results in life and godliness is knowledge of His precious and very great promises, of which Peter has already given us one. In verse 3, that is, we are called to His glory and excellence. Then notice that just as in verse 3, the knowledge of our call to glory empowers for life and godliness. So in verse 4, the promises of God free us from the corruption of this world and enables us to be partakers of the divine nature. What does it mean to be a partaker of the divine nature? Well, it doesn't mean we become divine. We're not that church. We will never be God. The Greek word for partakers is the uh, familiar, maybe you know it, koinonios. To share, to fellowship, to be a companion. It is through God's promises that we become partakers, shares, companions, have fellowship in His divine nature. Again, we never become divine. We never become part of God. But amazingly, we share in His nature, and we become increasingly like Him. Or as in verse 3, we are granted godliness. This godliness of verse 3 is spelled out for us uh, both negatively and positively in verse 4. First, godliness involves escaping, being free from our sinful desires as seen in the corruption of this world. Being, uh, godliness involves being liberated from the power of sin, that corrupts and destroys our lives. And second, godliness involves partaking of the divine nature, being united with God, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And the Spirit-inspired Peter is teaching us how these two aspects of godliness are experienced in our lives. That freedom from sin... Anybody want that? You better. Sorry. And becoming more like Christ go hand in hand, these come by knowing and trusting God's precious and very great promises. So, so what we've just talked about, verse 3 and 4, is pretty deep stuff, right? I mean, did you maybe get lost? That's why I have small groups. You can go and talk a little more about this stuff. But whether you're getting it totally or not, it leads to a very practical application. Do you see it? 
We must day by day go to the Word of God and search for His great promises. Memorize the promises of God, uh, the promises of God for your life. Fix them in your minds. Hold them before you all day. Preach them to yourself, if you know what that means. Just talk to yourself about it. Wow. When you experience temptation, difficulties in life, turn to God's promises. Use them as Jesus did. Remember, when Jesus was tempted to sin, he called on the Word of God. Notice in the last uh, part of verse 4 that corruption comes because of sinful desires. This means that the battle, there's a, this battle raging against corruption is fought on the field of our desires. I mean, we know that. It's, oh, I want that. I want that. Our passions. Sin attacks us, makes us attacked by holding out promises for our happiness. So this, this is the, uh, you know, you can, you're going to need to choose. Am I going to trust in the promises of sin or the promises of this world? The promises of sin are such as if you lie on your income tax, you'll have more money and be happier. If you divorce your spouse, you'll be happier. If you brag about winning the game, you'll be happier. If you go to that website, you'll be happier. If you buy that thing, you'll be happier. If you don't upset your relationship with your neighbor by sharing Christ, you'll be happier, etc., etc. And sin will always win this battle unless we have God's great promises set firmly in our hearts and minds. Unless we enter our day armed with uh, one, two, three precious and great promises, we'll be utterly vulnerable to temptation. But if we know the astonishing things God has promised us now and in this life to come, His divine power will be present and will escape corruption and will be conformed to the image of His Son. Therefore, I urge you, if you want to experience life and godliness, uh, search this book. Spend time reading this book. Find the promises of God. And there's lots, some direct, some implied. Memorize them. Set them firmly in your mind. Again, preach them to yourself so that, that they stand as a fortress against the sinful desires of this world. And they'll serve as a shining hope, revealing the knowledge of God that you might know Him and share in His divine nature. Now, if we had time, we could now go into the promises. List some promises. I could start talking to you. About the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I mean, I, I won't get started. I'd show you how trusting these promises produces life and godliness. But, I'm grateful we have small groups. I'm going to leave you, uh, leave that for your small groups. And I'd encourage you this week to look at the, the small group questions in your notes. Specifically, question seven. Let me just read it. Share with one another, a few of God's precious and very great promises. Discuss how these promises helped you become partakers of the divine nature, become more like Christ, and escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Overcome your sinful life. Think about this. Prepare for this 
that you might share with one another in your small groups, that you might grow together, that you might learn, oh, I didn't know that promise. That's a great one. I could really use that one. So, so come together this week in your small groups and uh, share over the promises of God. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your many blessings in our lives. Thank you for your word. And at this point, we, we just thank you for your promises, that you've promised us life and godliness. You've given us that, that gift. Father, I pray that we would, we would receive it, we would open it by spending time in your word, that we would use it to transform us, that we would be able to partake in your divine nature, become more like Christ, that we would be able to live godly lives, that we would be able to overcome sin, and experience the abundant life that you have for us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if the ushers could come forward, and Brian's going to lead us in our time of communion.